Good morning, everybody. It is good to see you. Are you all well? Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, so I, I greeted you all, but I also, we have our online audience. So I want to make sure I greet everybody. Hello, if you are watching from online. And especially, I found out my family is watching online at home today. So hello to my family and everyone else's families who's online. So we've taken care of that. Everybody is fully greeted. Uh, we can now move forward. I'm excited for today because this month we have found ourselves uh, focusing on the Lord's Prayer. I don't know if you noticed that, but we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer and our hope for this series was that we would be able to discover uh, that prayer is this gift from God and, and a practice in doing so that recenters us on Jesus. Uh, because, and, and here's why we wanted this to, to happen, why we wanted this hope to take place, is because uh, we often find that we can have difficulty praying. We wonder, why should I pray? Uh, I don't know the words, or what's the point of praying if God already knows what I'm gonna say anyways? And, and so what we've wanted to do during this is tie each, each Sunday uh, to this truth that we have. And it's this truth that we believe that prayer, as opposed to being something that God demands and requires from us, is something that God has gifted us with, that something God has for us. And in looking at it that way, it allows us to, to deeply connect and speak with God, but we get to do so not out of feelings of obligation or guilt, but out of feelings of joy and excitement. And so we've been in this again, the Lord's Prayer. Let's go back just as a refresher. We'll look at the verses that we've been in already. We're in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, starting in verse 9. And Jesus says, Pray then like this Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And then we get to today's passage and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So today, our passage, it speaks of the idea of forgiveness, which seems like a super relevant thing right now to be able to talk about forgiveness. When you look at times today where we're so polarized in our world, there's, there's so much tension, and it seems to be intense, so, so much intensity and tension in our world. There, we can watch, I think each of us have seen in the past year and a half or, or longer, relationships breaking and becoming fractured. And so what a great time in, in our world right now, in our lives, to talk about forgiveness. And we're indeed going to explore forgiveness and, and the implications uh, of what this portion of the prayer has for us. But before we do that, uh, there's something I wanna look at. And I wanna look at uh, why forgiveness can be a difficult thing. Because it can be, it can be a difficult thing for us. Uh, and so whether we're thinking about forgiveness in our own relationships with other people, or even just the forgiveness that God offers us and accepting that forgiveness, it can be difficult. And so I wanna look at uh, why it's so difficult for that. Why it's so difficult to give and receive forgiveness. And I think it's difficult because we aren't good at being wrong. We, as people, we just are not very good at being wrong. You know, I can think about moments in my own life where, where I really was wrong and wasn't very good at being wrong. You know, I, it was probably about six years ago, it was right around my wife's birthday, uh, and I was rushing, I kind of, I was behind, and schedule on stuff. And so 
I, I realized, oh my goodness, I need to get my wife her gifts, celebrate her birthday. So I went on to Amazon and I typed in my wife's name and looked for her wish list and it popped up and I didn't really even pay attention to what was on there. I just said, okay, she's got a wish list. I'll get the top three things and you know, she'll really enjoy that and, and we'll get those. And so uh, her birthday comes and I give her her gifts and all of that and, and she opens up her gifts and I will list off for you what I had given my wife. I gave my wife a, uh, a skull and crossbones themed uh, shower curtain, a pair of ski goggles, and a pair of sunglasses that looked like they were out of Back to the Future 2, where you know, Biff in the future had those weird sunglasses. You know, they looked like they were from about 30 years from now. And, and I realized, and had I paused to think, uh, I, what happened is, there apparently is somebody else out there with my wife's name. <laughs> and I ordered off their gift list. And I, but you know what I did? I sat there and I looked at my wife and I said, dang, Amazon. Can you believe what they did? Because it's easy to blame Amazon, right? Like you can just pin it on them. And, it, and you know, I knew I was wrong. I knew I had messed up, and yet I didn't want to admit it. Well, why not? Like, had I just taken a moment and like looked at the thing, I, I would have realized my wife is not a pirate, so she doesn't need that, you know, that, that shower curtain. She hates the cold, so she clearly doesn't want ski goggles, and she already has sunglasses, so she doesn't want those. But again, uh, why was it so tough to admit that I was wrong? Well, for one, if I did that, I would have to admit that I was really late in getting her gifts ordered, that I'd kind of forgotten about things. And I'd have to admit that. But then I'd also have to admit, uh, you know, I should have known better. I, again, I wasn't paying that much attention. If I had paid even just a little bit of attention, I would have realized like these aren't things that she wants. And so I would have had to admit, I should have known better about, about what she wanted. And I also would have had to acknowledge that it would have seemed like I, didn't really put much thought or care into the gifts that I gave her. And so I instead said, it wasn't me. I wasn't the one in the wrong. Because none of us want to be the person who messes things up. None of us want to be the person that does it wrong. But I'd ask you the same question I asked myself. Why, why is it so hard to admit that we're wrong? I mean, is it because it's embarrassing to be wrong? It's not fun. Nobody enjoys it. Or maybe there's a part where it just doesn't seem fair that you have to own being wrong. Sometimes it's just not fair. Uh, maybe even as adults, we still feel this. We don't want to get in trouble. If I admit that I'm wrong, I may get in trouble with my spouse, with my coworkers, and my boss. I don't want to get in trouble. Or it just could come down to we're stubborn people, aren't we? And sometimes in our stubbornness, we sure don't want to admit that we're wrong. Have you been the person ever who, like me, can't admit they're wrong? You know, I'd ask you, when was the last time that you admitted you were wrong? When was the last time that you actually said the words, I was wrong? And if you can't remember that, they may be telling you something. Have you experienced this with somebody else where they won't admit that they're wrong to you? You see, when 
people can't admit they're wrong, when we, when we realize that we are not good at being wrong, it makes forgiveness really hard. Because the thing that helps us be okay with being wrong is humility. It's easy to be wrong when we can have humility. So the, the hope for today, the thought for today would be that, that we see prayer as this gift that centers us in humility and opens us up to forgiveness. As we explore these, this last this line from the Lord's Prayer, that we can be centered in humility and open to forgiveness. And I want to take a moment to define humility real quick. Uh, is We've heard it defined as it's selflessness, thinking less of yourself, or being able to not think too highly of yourself. But there's another layer there that, that when you break that down, what that, that looks like. And humility, it, what it, it, it means is being able to live in a way that gives up the need for control. To, to live in a way that gives up the thinking that I have to be in control of things. And the, the thing is, especially nowadays, humility is often seen of, as something that's a weakness. Right? You know, it seems a weakness because if I'm humble, if, I'm, if I have humility, you know, that, that means I might get walked all over. That means that, you know, I don't, I want to know best. If, if I have humility, you know, it makes it look weak that I don't know best. Uh, I don't want to admit that I was wrong. I don't want to give complete control over my life and circumstances to things. You know, haven't we found ourselves in situations in the last year and a half where we have been wrestling with just that? Realizing how much control do we have over things? There's this fascinating study that I read about where it talked about the idea of forgiveness and apologizing and control and all that sort of stuff and power. And, and what it found was that people who refused to apologize after they made a mistake ended up having more self-esteem and felt more in control and powerful than those who didn't. Now, I'll, I'll read a little bit about what they said. Uh, and, and what the guy who, who did the study said this, in a way, apologies give power to their recipients. For example, apologizing to my wife admits my wrongdoing, but apologizing also gives her the power to choose whether she wants to alleviate my shame through forgiveness or increase my shame by holding a grudge. The research found that people experience short-term, not long-term, short-term increase in their feelings of power and control by refusing to apologize. So the study showed how much people wanted to hang on to the power and control of their lives. But what I'd ask, is this really strength? Especially for those of us here in this room, is this really what strength is? What if we look to Jesus? We'd never see Jesus as weak. And look at how he expresses strength. Look what he lives out. And in his letter to the Philippians, Paul, in chapter two, writes this about Christ. Uh, where are we? Chapter two, verses three through eight. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. 
Jesus, someone who is certainly not weak, shows us that humility is a strength. That it is, it is a characteristic that defines people who follow Jesus. And that we, we don't have to fear it or run from it, but we can actually embrace it as a strength. And so we spent all this time on humility because what I wanted to be sure was that we saw it as a strength and not a weakness, because here's why. Humility is the key ingredient to making forgiveness happen. It's so important, I'm gonna say it again. Humility is the key ingredient to making forgiveness happen. So in the rest of our time here, what I'd like to do is we're gonna look at two points about humility and then uh, humility and forgiveness. And then I wanna kind of look at what it means to applicate that and to live that out. So the first point is this, it takes humility to receive forgiveness. It takes humility to receive forgiveness, both from God and from other people. And while it may not at first seem like it, receiving forgiveness takes an immense amount of humility. It requires that I acknowledge I'm wrong. It requires that I trust that God or this other person that, that I, I'm getting forgiveness from, they're not going to hold a grudge, right? I have to trust that they're forgiving me and not gonna hold a grudge, that they won't heap shame upon my head because of what I've done or that they're not gonna hold things against me. It's tough, it takes humility. And you know, when we feel that we need forgiveness, isn't there this tension that we feel? This tension that we feel and it can leave us feeling like, uh, feeling and living like we're, we're bound up, we're constricted, we're restrained. We're chained up by those very things that we need forgiveness from and for. And what's so crazy about this is we feel that, knowing that we need forgiveness, and yet we often find ourselves either saying, no, I'm not really denying that, that no, I'm not constricted, I'm not chained up, I'm not bound up, or thinking I can get out of this myself without having to deal with any sort of forgiveness, without having to be humble and approach somebody. You know, I'm thinking back to my, my, my senior year in high school, and I know we have some high schoolers in here uh, today. I'm glad you're in here because you can reaffirm what I'm about to say. And, and that is that when we are in high school, we're lots of fun, but we don't always make the smartest of choices. And sometimes we make a choice where when, even five minutes later, we say, well, maybe that wasn't the best choice. And so I remember walking through uh, my, the campus, walking around with my high school friends when I was a senior in high school, and we, we were wanting to do an experiment. And we wondered, could we saran wrap somebody to a pole so high up that they would just be dangling and not fall off? We wondered this. So we were looking around trying to figure out what would we do here? And again, this is that moment where, where you know, we can affirm that high schoolers don't make the best choice. Because I said, well, I'll do it. What's the worst that could happen? Let's see. And so my, my friends lifted me up, hoisted me up, saran wrapped me around a pole, and I'm here to tell you that our, our hypothesis was right. You can indeed hang somebody off the ground pretty high up and they won't fall off. And so I'm up there and I said, all right, guys, looks like we solved that one. I'm ready to get down now. And they turned around and walked away, which I know my friends, I should have seen that one coming. That's on me. So I'm sitting there and, and I'm wondering, okay, this is awkward. And I'm figuring out, okay, I gotta get down. How am I gonna get down? And this group of freshmen walk by. 
and they look at me. And it's a very small school that I went to. It was like 200 people total. So everyone knows everybody. So it's not as if like they didn't know who I was. And then they stare at me and they're like, do you need some help? And I said, no, actually I'm good. I'm just, you know, up here surveying the beauty and majesty of God's creation. I'll be down when I'm done. They look at me like I'm an idiot and then they walked on. And so I sat there and I did everything I could to escape from this bondage, to escape. And I, I wriggled and I tried to flex and I, you know, I channeled my inner Wolverine and thought maybe claws would shoot out of my hands and nothing worked until finally I see another group of kids walking off in the distance. I think they were sophomores this time. So it was a little less embarrassing. And said, uh, hey, hey, I, help me out here. And they finally came over and it was just, it was the longest like five minutes of my life as they slowly unwrapped me, just staring at me. But you know, I was stuck and I, I, and I was trying to get loose and it took me forever to admit that I needed someone else to let me go. You know, part of that was because I had to admit that this was a bad choice on my part in the first place. I had to admit, that was not a good choice to let your friends saran wrap you to a pole. Are you feeling bound up by something that you need forgiveness for? What, are, what is it that you're feeling restricted, chained up, bound up by? Have you lied and now you, you keep having to try and maintain that lie and it goes deeper and deeper and deeper? Or have you said something you regret to somebody, coworker, spouse, whoever it is, and you, know, you, you want to admit it and take those words back, but you don't know, will that other person let you? you know, this is something I've learned like in the last six months, it seems like over and over and over. But you know, as a parent, are you, have you had that moment where you have just overreacted over the top to something that your kid has done or said and just blown your stack you know, at a level 11 when the reaction should have just been a level two. And now you're saying, man, I gotta go apologize to my kid. What are you feeling bound up by? What are the things that you don't wanna talk to God about? What are the things that you just don't even try to think about? And at the end of the day, those are still the things that are keeping you chained up. So humility, humility helps us to be willing to open ourselves up to being forgiven and in being forgiven, be set free. And so it takes humility to ask for forgiveness, but it's what will set us free. The second thing is it takes humility to give forgiveness. It takes humility to let go of the power that you have, to open yourself up to having that wrong done to you again, to let go of a grudge. It's fun to have grudges sometimes, but it takes humility to actually let it go and get to a better place. But I love the word that Jesus uses for forgive can literally be translated to let go or let loose. And so in being humble and, and forgiving, you are literally unchaining letting loose the other person. You're absolving them in some sense. You know, I, I can recall back to a time uh, before I was married uh, and, you know, I was in college and then a little bit after I graduated college, 
uh, my roommate and I, we lived in like four or five different apartment complexes, depending on where we were working and, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and, and I've learned a valuable lesson about apartment complexes. Apartment complexes, they teach you something. They're in existence to teach you something. And it's how to live in, with other people who can be supremely obnoxious and still be able to keep your patience and, and like function in a community with them. It teaches you great patience to live in an apartment complex. And so the, one of the, my favorite ones, everyone had its own unique little thing, but one of my favorite ones was this one that we moved into and it, right before we moved into it, they had shifted into what kind of complex they were gonna be. Uh, they had previously been one of those types of apartment complexes where it was only senior adults who were allowed to live there. But for some reason they had shifted it to where, okay, we're starting to let anybody in any age. And it had only been like a month or two when we started moving in. So 90% of the people still living there were senior adults and it was awesome because they had like bingo every day in the clubhouse and shuffleboard tournaments and all sorts of cool things. And so it was this really cool experience. But, you know, wouldn't you know it, it was fascinating. It is just our luck that out of the 90% of the people who are senior adults, my roommate and I moved into the bottom floor of one of the apartment buildings and we moved beneath the only other apartment that had young people in it. It was a young family, a family with young kids. And I knew every single day when they got home because that's when they would start their track meet. And it wasn't like the 100-yard dash because it would go late into the night. They were having marathons. And at some point, you're just like, somebody wins. Somebody just win. Let's crown a winner and go to bed. And, and it, it became this, this family... And me, it became a source of tension and frustration for me. I remember I'd be walking out of my apartment, going, getting ready to go to work or go to, my, uh, go to school or whatever it is. And I would, there were so many times when I nearly was killed by a, a child skateboarding down the, uh, down the sidewalk where like it would have, it just, death, I would have been splattered. And, and I'd look at them and, and they just keep going. I remember there was one time where I am, it's two in the morning and I wake up and I hear this rustling in my room and I turn on the light and there is a rat sitting in my room, staring directly at me. And you're saying, well, what does it have to do with these people? Well, I'll tell you what it has to do with these people. Uh, it was not like one of those rabid sewer rats. Like this, this wasn't splinter or anything like that. This was instead, this was uh, like one of those cute pet rats that you get from PetSmart. And it's two in the morning, so I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just tired and like, why is there a rat there? So I get my roommate up and we chase it around the house for like half an hour and finally just shoot it outside. And I got to thinking like, how did this rat get into my house? And, and it dawned on me that I bet what happened was that this was their pet upstairs and it got loose and it came down through the ductwork and just decided it was gonna harass me because that's what everybody in that family did. And so it sat there and, and, and I was just sitting there. I'm like, what is going on? But the moment... I reached the end of my rope. I remember this vividly. This whole apartment complex was wonderful, this whole experience. I, I at some point, at one evening, the, the son, the boy in the family, decided that the best use of his time would be to sit on their back porch and practice his BB gun target practice by shooting out various lights in the complex. And in doing so, he, uh, he was perfecting his hunting skills and, and clearly needed some work because rather than hitting a light, he drilled my windshield and put a BB hole right through my windshield. So I get up in the morning and I go out and the apartment uh, manager's standing there and they explain to me, look, uh, here's what happened. We're gonna take care of it. Don't, you know, really sorry. 
you got to you know, crack your windshield. At that moment, it, it was when I, I discovered I was part like half Incredible Hulk and just started hulking up. And I was like, I cannot believe this. That's it. And I, uh, even though the, the complex was going to take care of it, I spent the next week planning out exactly what I was going to say to this child that would inspire just the right amount of fear to make him soil himself uh, and, and guilt to make him cry. And that's a fine line. It, that, that takes wordsmithing. You can't just, you know, do that off the top of your head. Because, and I refuse to, to say, no, I'm not going like, to let go of it because I figured if I don't let go of this, if I don't share with him, you know, my thoughts, feelings, and, and all this, he's going to think he can shoot my windshield anytime he wants. And that's not happening. So here's the funny part about all this. In this moment, at this time in my life, uh, this was when I was the middle school pastor here. And the great irony of it all is, is what I do remember is that that was the week where I was going to be teaching our middle schoolers about forgiveness. And the reason this sticks in my head is because I recall, I, I always remember this, because I spent practically the whole week trying to start a uh, talk on forgiveness and not being able to get it. Being like, well, no, that doesn't work. That doesn't fit. And I, and I couldn't actually start it. And I realized it's because I'm, try, I'm about to tell all these kids they need to go forgive people and I want to make a kid poop his pants. Like, this is clearly incongruent. And so it, it got to the point where I had to let things go. I had to, to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let this child go. I'm going to loose the chains. I'm going to set him free. I don't need to make him cry. I don't need to make him live in fear. I, I, I don't need to do anything. I can let him free. I want to challenge you. Think of somebody that, that you need to forgive, that you have the opportunity to forgive. Maybe they've done a small thing. Maybe, maybe it's a big thing. I, I don't know. Is there somebody that when you think about them, you suddenly have this strong, visceral reaction? You see their social media posts, and you're like, oh, and you want to post something back real bad. Is there there's something that tightens within you or you just feel some sort of like crazy emotional response when you think of them? That might be an indicator that there's something there that needs to be forgiven. And it, this is why it's so important, not only for, for them, but for you. Because Paul writes again in another letter in the book of Colossians, or chapter three, starting in verse 12. This is what Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And I love what Paul's saying there is that, that idea of perfect harmony. If it's as if Paul is saying, if we can't forgive, then we're stuck living a fractured life. And a life that is fractured in the sense that we can't live this whole harmonious, free, beautiful, full life when we're spending time also holding on to the wounds and hurts from this other person. You can't do both. And so you have this split life, this fractured life. So not only does forgiving, resting in humility, forgiving, allow us to unchain the other person and set them free. It's an act for freedom of, uh, uh, for us as well. 
because we're no longer dragging around what that person has done to us. We get to let that go. And we've set ourselves free as well. So those are our two points, but here's some application. Here's some things to walk through that maybe we can think about it and things to do this week. First thing is, ask God to forgive you. Ask God to forgive you. Ask God for forgiveness. And there's something very important that I want to make sure we understand here. This is vital to me. Uh, is I want to make sure what we understand is that asking God for forgiveness is not an exercise in telling God how terrible you are. We can sometimes get, fall into that trap where we think to tell God and ask for forgiveness means we've got to tell him how terrible we are and all the terrible things we've done. No, no, no. It's not that. Asking God for forgiveness means learning to admit what you have done, but acknowledging still what it is that God thinks of you. Acknowledging and remembering that it doesn't matter what you've done or not done, but remembering that God still loves you. It's remembering and acknowledging that you still have immense worth to God. Do you realize how worthy you are to God? How much worth you have to God? You are not worth any less to him than his son. Bible tells us his son was payment for us. We are worth Christ to God. So it's, it's not an exercise in talking about how terrible I am, but rather it's an exercise in acknowledging what I've done, but remembering that I'm still valuable and worth to him. And it's this great thing because once you get to that point, even though you and God both know what you, you've messed up, you both know what you've done, you both know you've sinned, there's something beautiful in actually asking for that forgiveness that creates this honesty and ability for you to set those things down and to go forward in God's forgiveness. So if you can get to that spot, there's something really cool you can do with it. I would challenge you this week, speak it out loud. Maybe when you do this prayer, speak it out loud. Because there's something powerful about praying things out loud. It's this act of, okay, I can say it. I can acknowledge it. I did it. But I can also let it go. It didn't kill me. It didn't wreck me. I'm still here. And God still counts me as worth his son. So speak it out loud. The second thing is ask God to help you to forgive others. And this is very similar to the idea of asking God to uh, forgive us. Because we've just talked about seeing ourselves as worth his son. It's also remembering and, and asking to help us to look at others as worth his son. Can we look at others that way? And if we do that, then we can start really living out and, and doing some practical things with this. There's this idea, first, you, okay, we remember you've done wrong. Remember others have done wrong. But the point is to not heap shame and guilt upon yourself for that. But remember in the midst of this, that God still loves you. To see forgiveness as a moment of freedom. And then once you've, you've stepped into that forgiveness experience, let that shape your life. And then look at that and give it away. That's how you can, can embrace the humility to forgive others. You know, we, I, I think... Every pastor at some point has used the story of Les Mis and Jean Valjean as an illustration. And so we'll, we'll revisit it, but they, they usually use it in, in a particular way. And I want to look at it in a slightly different way. So just to catch us all up, if you haven't seen Les Mis, there's a guy named Jean Valjean. 
set free from prison. He's been in prison for 19 years, set free from prison. And he, uh, he goes to this town, is trying to find a place to stay. He has no place to stay, no food. And a bishop takes him in and says, okay, come stay with me. And in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean gets up and he steals the bishop's silverware, the silver plates, all that sort of stuff. And he gets arrested. He runs away and he gets arrested and he gets brought back to the bishop. You remember? And the bishop says, he responds by saying, no, 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 those were gifts. He didn't steal them. And in fact, friend, you forgot the rest of it. You forgot the silver candlestick holders as well. And so when we hear this sermon, it hits this point. We hear the story, it's used in the sermon. It's to illustrate the, the, the beauty of grace as an illustration of grace, which it is. And grace is an intensely and wonderfully beautiful thing. But I wanna look a little bit differently at it and ask us to look at what happened after that in the story. Because what we find in the story is that Jean Valjean, he, he gets He's not arrested, he's set free. He, gets to, he moves to another town. And in that town, when he's there, because of the grace and the forgiveness of this bishop, he's able to start a, a manufacturing business and he, he amasses a great fortune. And what does he do with his fortune? He spends most of his fortune on paying for hospitals and orphanages and schools. And eventually he's appointed the mayor of the town and he does all these good works for the people of the town. And what what I love about that, looking at through that lens, is that he could have lived with guilt and shame about the fact that he got caught and stole from a bishop. But instead, he looked at that moment of forgiveness and he experienced it as a gift of freedom and lived as he was free. And he shaped his life to reflect that freedom and then he gave the beauty of that away. He was able to live out of that and give the beauty away. So go back to that person that you thought about who you have the opportunity to forgive. What if I challenge you this week? Make a plan on what you're gonna do with that. Make a plan. Are you, is it something where you just need to, to be with God and, and get right with them? Do you need to say something to them? What, what's the plan? And then picture, what, what would that look like? What would it mean for that person for you to extend forgiveness? Even more so, what would it mean for you Give forgiveness. Because I think what you would discover is that this is, it would be a moment where that forgiveness has set both of you free 